Wow, are we going to have a conversation today? This person has so many books and so many things to say, and I have so many questions, and some of them are going to be somewhat controversial. I'm going to be talking with Dr. Will Horton. He is an NLP expert, a hypnotist, and he has some pretty big claims to make that he can help you. We're going to talk about that. Stay tuned. Welcome to Emotional Savvy, the Relationship Help Show. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler. If you're ready to increase your confidence in conversations and conflict, deepen your self-awareness, expand your connectedness, and enrich your relationship with yourself and other humans you care about, and even those you wish you didn't, you're in the right place. Enjoy today's episode. Well, I'm excited today to be talking with Dr. Will Horton. You can find him at drwillhorton.com. That's D-R-W-I-L-L-H-O-R-T-O-N, drwillhorton.com. And he's written many books. They're all available on his website. You'll see them there. He has a free ebook for you later I'll talk about. But in the beginning of all of this, let's find out what makes this guy tick. Welcome to the program, Dr. Will. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I always love sharing the message. What is the message? Uh, that you can live a, a, a transforming lifestyle. You can, you can live the life you dream if you just figure out how to change your mind so you can change your life. Well, that's a very, very standard thing uh, from um, Ernest Holmes and all. Change your thinking, change your life. Were you influenced by that? Uh yeah, the Ernest Holmes and Science of Mind and uh, uh, Unity kind of church thinking. But really, the, the person that really started to change it for me was uh, uh, the book, or the book was uh, uh, Psycho-Cybernetics. Ah, yeah, because Maxwell Maltz. Right. that began to put a, 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 not just change your thinking, which sounds good, but no steps to do it. We'll always mm -hmm. say that. Be positive. Well, how are you positive? And all this other stuff. So it started, and then that led, uh, once I overcame an addiction, I started uh, a, a path of studying this, which led me into the NLP and the hypnosis, <clears throat> excuse me, and then I did go back and get my doctorate in clinical psychology, but I stay in the hypnosis and the NLP side, so, because it gives you a structure of how to use things in your brain. Mm-hmm. Um I did a master's in NLP as well as a PhD in psychology, so I know a few things about this. And uh, I have to tell you that I refuse to use the NLP and the hypnosis um, because it doesn't suit my system. Um, but so I do have lots of questions, as you can imagine. So I looked at your website and I see things that, you know, a book title that says how to get others to do what you want and have them think it was their idea. Mm -hmm. the, <clears throat> is that an appealing book title? Or I, I'm really interested to know if people flock to get that book because it, it gives them some power. Yeah, it, it, uh, it, it, that's one reason I picked that title. It sold quite well uh, because we're always trying to, communicate our thoughts or desires and our 
uh, wishes to another person. And everything is communication and everything is persuasion. We're always trying to persuade each other to uh, a, a different, maybe a different outlook, maybe a different thinking pattern and this. And so, so I went right to the, right down to the bottom and said, how to get others to do what you want and have them think it was their idea. And it kind of, when I first started it, it, it uh, was rather controversial and it, it upset a lot of people. But I'm like, you know, it, that's what a lot of people are doing, you know. And, you know, when you look at marketers, when you look at politicians, when you look at all of the social media things that are moving the world, that's what they're doing. And a lot of times we'll end up taking an action thinking it's our idea and it was guided every step of the way. Guided by whom? by usually someone put together a marketing plan or a plan to get you to take action. You know, uh, it's like when, I mean, there's a lot of cool things when they started looking at habits, they, you know, how do you develop a habit and how do you make things catch fire, if you will. <clears throat> and uh, they studied with, you know, in the, the turn of the century, nobody was brushing their teeth in the United States. It's, they just weren't, right? And then right after the war, the government found out that a, we had a major problem because guys couldn't go into the military because their teeth were so bad, they wouldn't survive going into stressful situations. So they were trying to figure out ways to get people to start brushing their teeth because they knew if you brushed your teeth, it would... It, it helped your oral health, your teeth got better, and everything else. They couldn't sell it. People could not, they would not buy tooth polish, as it was called then. And so they tried this, and they, they tried a lot of things. Even the vanity aspect, which usually works in marketing, of like have a movie star smile and all this other stuff. And that worked somewhat. But then the guy, and I, his name just fell out of my head, uh, he came up with the idea of adding peppermint when you were brushing your to the to the tooth polish, and he could hook it, he could hook it with the idea of a minty fresh mouth, and so that little hook got that with the idea of a movie star smile because in the 1920s and going into the 30s that was big, and of course before World War One there were no there were a few movie theaters but it exploded, and so we started you know emulating the movie stars with the beautiful smile. Of course those were artificial, but People wanted it. So when they added that and the instant, here's what it was. There was an instant feedback when they put the mint in. And so you got the, the minty fresh smile. And so then, and then I could fast forward real quick because I love this story. When they came up with Febreze, they couldn't sell it. They could not sell it, right? And then, and they tried all kinds of things. Nothing worked till they tagged it with, a woman cleaning her house, and then as soon as you see a clean room, she would spray it, take a deep breath, and go, you know, clean to the whatever it was. There was a tagline. And it's those kind of things. That's how they get us to take action. So then when you're in the grocery store and you're buying toothpaste or you're, you know, we're reaching for, for, for breeze, and we think it's our idea, but it was installed in a systematic way through time. Mm -hmm. So that's really what the book's about. <laughs> well, you see, I'm so glad I asked, because if I read the title, How to Get Others to Do What You Want and Have Them Think It Was Their Idea, 
my mind goes to sociopaths, psychopaths, narcissists. Um, and then I read the next one that you have called Secrets of Cult Leaders and Master Manipulators. And I'm like, whoa, hey, what's going on here? Are you teaching people to be psychopathic? So there's a big question for me. Now, that caused you to have a little look in your memory. What was that? Well, I... I... I think when you study like a cult leader, right? Well, first of all, I always preface, when you look at sociopath or psychopathic behavior as a psychologist, you know this, when you look at the average CEO, they fit the profile of a sociopath. No. Well, a lot of them do. You know, they, they place profit. I mean, it's, it, it gets you ahead in life at the expense of other people. Oh, some of them certainly do that. You know, but I think it would be a broad generality to suggest that that they're sociopathic or psychopathic. They may have a strong ego drive to do something, and they may edge on narcissism, but psychopathic is born. So I wouldn't say that. I mean, I certainly wouldn't say that, although I'm sure there are a few. And I wouldn't say sociopathic because they may take care of their employees while making sure they make a profit. So, well, I would argue in this culture, very few CEOs really worry about their uh, employees like they used to. Uh, that's just well, been my experience. I, I agree with you. I think that we're you know, going we can, in a poor we direction. Can, we can lay off 5,000 steel workers because the CEO gets a $21 million bonus. That exactly. Is, that is abnormal uh, behavior, in my opinion. So. You know. I agree. I I do think it's abnormal, but you know, I just want everybody who's new to maybe thinking about these things to realize that just because someone makes a whole lot of money, that doesn't mean that they're sociopathic or psychopathic. It does mean that they have a strong idea and they may have a strong drive to create profit. Um, hopefully, the majority of them will move into some place that allows for some social benefit for the people that work for them or the people who engage with whatever it is they're doing. But I do agree with you that there is an edge to that, that, you know, you have to have a certain way of looking at the world in order to feel that what you have is the most important thing that people should give their money to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, do you think that when you say words like cult leaders and master manipulators, that that is uh, attractive to folks? Yes, I think I think it is. And because some people, A, they think they want to do it. But B, on the other side, it's good to know how it's being done so you can follow. Oh, this is, you know, and why it's so appealing to get pulled into it. Because, you know, when you look at a lot of the cults, uh, you know, a lot of people would assume, oh, it's, you know, lower educated, lower intelligence people. Yeah, but when you really look at cults, no, you know, Heaven's Gate, the average education was master's degree with over six figure income. And not only did this guy create a cult and, you know, everybody committed suicide. That was horrible. But the thing that fascinated me even more than the suicide was he got every man in that group to to self castrate themselves. Did he? Yes. He was the only one that was functional that way. And I'm like, hmm, knowing Ooh. the male ego from the inside and studying it, I'm like, what did this guy do? Mm -hmm. You know? Did and, you and, study and, him? 
Uh, I looked at some of his stuff and there's basically like a five point plan that people can do to get people to, to, to move towards certain activities. And it's, it's rather simple and you see it in marketing all the time. And one reason I wrote these books is I hope people would look at it and go, Oh, that's what that is. You know, uh, mm -hmm. I always, I, I, I tell the story of, you know, that I was teaching a class once, excuse me. And someone said there, Hey, I want to start a cult. And, and, you know, the, the class kind of freaked out. And I said, well, what kind of cult do you want to start? That's the way I think. Right. And he goes, well, he was a, 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 a minister. He was a voodoo priest, a third generation voodoo priest. And he wanted to, you know, build his, uh, his church. I said, great, we could do that. Right. And some of the people in the class got upset. But I always use the analogy of, you know, one man's, if you want to call it a cult, can be another man's savior. So I don't know what you're going to do with the information if I show you how to do it. You, and what I found a lot, even some of the people that come in with some of the nefarious attitudes that, oh, I'm going to learn this to do this, when they find out how easy it is to really, you know, help people make better choices that also help you. So it, it actually it becomes easier to do win-win because I think in the long run, if it's all just I win, you lose, you're going to end up, you know, collapsing eventually. Yeah, it does have a shortened shelf life when somebody finally realizes that's the equation. I mean, I, I certainly agree with you. This is fascinating stuff. What got you into it? Well, I, I uh, always liked hypnosis. I don't know. Well, there was, a, there was a couple movies. One was The Manchurian Candidate. I watched that movie, uh, and I just thought it was cool. I thought, wow, that's, you know, interesting. Didn't know anything about it. I was a little kid. And, and there was a couple other movies. Then in high school, I bought a book, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, on hypnosis, Hypnosis for Change. It's still in print, by the way. Mm. And I read it to some people, and I hypnotized them right? Scared me to death, right? Because it, you know, uh, I didn't really follow it because I was an athlete and I was rapidly going into uh, an addiction with alcohol, but I made, uh, and I'll date myself here, I made some self-improvement uh, tapes back when they were a little reel-to-reel. -reel. They weren't even cassettes yet. They were just coming out. So, and they work, but it got put on the back burner because I, I played sports, then went in the military and once I really started to uh, overcome an addiction, uh, I stumbled back into studying the hypnosis and the NLP. And once I did, or once it was exposed to me, excuse me, uh, you know, I'd been through treatment for the Veterans Administration. And then uh, I was going to 12-step meetings, which I still love. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an ardent 12-step supporter myself, even though I know it's not for everybody. Um, but once I got someone that walked me through a couple of little techniques, it all made sense. The therapy... <clears throat> the NL, you know, the, the 12 steps and how to really recover. And so that started me on a mission to study hypnosis and NLP. And then I went back and got the psych training because I still had government money. <laughs> <laughs> That's very honest of you, Dr. Will. <laughs> okay, so tell me the name of that book you read in high school, Hypnosis for Life. Hypnosis, hypnosis for Change. For Change. And I can't think, that it was a lady that wrote it. <clears throat> I can't think of the name, but it's, it, it was still in print uh, as of a couple years ago. Wow, wow, wow. So... I love your honesty. I love, the, I love it when you say I went back to school because there was money to do it. Um, but it, it also seems like it was in alignment with the things that you were learning and might want to have more foundation for. 
And so did you ever practice as a psychologist? Yes, I've had a couple small practices. And then I was the clinical director for a psych unit at a Florida state prison. Uh, That that was uh, interesting and heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about that for a minute. How many psychopaths and sociopaths did you meet in there? Quite a few, you know, quite a few. Uh, And I also saw how uh, the system itself kind of um, damaged the, the, uh, the, 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 uh, the guards. They don't like to be called guards, the corrections officers, Mm -hmm. you know, that because in that, in that culture, uh, if, if the corrections officers were too nice to the inmates, they got retribution from the administration. So they were almost training them to be inhuman. Well, I think that happens. You know, I had a client come to me, and I don't want to paint anybody else with this brush. Just this one client came to me, and he was, he was had finished all his deployments. He'd left the military, and he was really having trouble reentering with his family and the children and his wife. And he came to me, and he said, you know, I had a wonderful military career. I enjoyed everything about it. But this reentry process, I want you to help me know if I have become a sociopath because I have been taught not to feel anything when I have to do very difficult things. And so, you know, I think there are many times, and of course, when he's questioning whether he became one, um, then then we, we were off on a good path to finding out what was real. But I think that there are situations, you know, not only do we know that early trauma creates this kind of thing and early environment adds to it, but people can have psychotic breaks and things can go wrong and go sideways. But when you're working in the prison system, people who like to have power over it and have no empathy are more likely to end up in prison than anyone else. I mean, if, if I used to be the principal of a school for at-risk teenagers, and I remember one Monday morning, Dr. Wells sitting there and saying to the kids, well, what did you do? And this weekend, and one of the kids said, well, I broke into three houses. And I said, oh, why'd you do that? And he said, well, oh, I mean, these kids were, they trusted me completely. And they said, because there's nothing better than being in somebody's house, cooking their food, sitting at their table, and leaving a mess, and they don't know you're there, right? (laughs) So, yes, these kids are 14 to 17 years old, and that's the way they're thinking. But that same thing about going into somebody's life, messing with it, leaving a mess and getting out requires a certain turn of mind to think that those people don't matter. I only matter and who cares what happens to them. So I wouldn't be at all surprised to find that the largest percentage of people that you would run into that would be in any diagnostic group would be people who are psychopathic and sociopathic. If, And of course, narcissism is engaged in both of those. Right, right. And then also in the prison system, what was kind of heartbreaking is in this country, the prisons are the ad hoc mental health unit. Right. You know, there's guys that I remember one guy, he was serving, uh, I think it was in, it was up to about 20 years. He originally got one to three and then he gets in a fight because he had mental illness, but his original crime was he got off his meds and he just walked in a grocery store and stole a loaf of bread and a, 
and some wine. Sounds weird. But it was his third offense for a minor crime. And in Florida, they have three strikes and you're out. So he was sitting in jail for three to eight. And then he gets in a fight when they wouldn't give him his meds. And now he's serving, you know, 10 to, or 20 to 30. Right. And you're like, and once he was on his meds, I, I wouldn't call him criminal at all. So that's that was heartbreaking for me. Yes. Well, that's the difference, too. I mean, some people can be medicated, and that can make all the difference. But you're going to find that in somebody who has a bipolar disorder uh, or, you know, is, is something that medication can help. Whereas in a psychopath or a sociopath or a narcissist or a borderline, medication is not going to do the job um, for that diagnosis. They may have a dual diagnosis, but it won't help. And this is where we come into the real big questions of life. And of course, my audience is not all people who are interested in that kind of thing. So let's talk about things that are more general. What if somebody has experienced a a trauma that goes deeply into the shame space for them that's caused them to feel deep shame. What do you suggest that they look at and how can they be helped? Well, and, and um, you know, what, what I find fascinating uh, in a book I just, uh, I, I love and I recommend to people about this is uh, the body never forgets. And when, when you have a, a, a trauma, either emotional or physical, it's encoded into the, the physiology of the body. Mm-hmm. And that's why, you know, it'll be beyond words. And uh, especially uh, uh, an impact trauma, uh, whether it's a- active like something like combat, combat uh, uh, a car wreck, or an, an abuse situation, uh, or even emotional, strong emotional trauma, it actually shuts off the Broca's area of the brain so you don't have words for the experience. Mm-hmm. So how can I explain to you? And you've, you've had this when people, you say, well, tell me about it. And they go, I got no words. Because literally, you weren't processing words at that moment. So now, and because we, we make sense out of our world through words, now, you know, it's 20 years later, and you can't put words to the experience, but the experience is visceral. It's down in the gut. And usually it's below the, the solar plexus. And once it's really down in there, uh, it's going it, to, you got to work through it. A- and it doesn't matter if it's a, if it's an act of commission, somebody did something wrong or horrible to you or an act of omission, your parents or your authority figures or whatever, didn't you give you the love, care and nurturing? It seems like over time, it kind of goes to the same place. And then you see it, you know, uh, manifest in things like relationships, mm-hmm. you know, why a, a, a woman that is sexually abused as a child, I think the number is seven times more likely to be raped as an adult, right? And it's like some of those numbers, you're like, whoa, it's just kind of, kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I talk a lot and I know you've listened to other shows that I've done, so you know this, but the people that I help are the people who have, have, are the uh, partners, the exes, or the adult children or siblings of people who are toxic. So these kinds of things. So speak a little bit more. Let's take this a little deeper for the personal, uh, the person who's listening here. What would be the connection of, a, of personal shame, keeping people in a toxic relationship? Well, when you, when you have that deep 
inbred feeling of shame because maybe you were brought up in a toxic household. And one of the things underneath it is uh, uh, you were basically told you shouldn't exist. You know, you don't deserve to be alive. You, you know, I wish you would have been a boy to, to a young girl or to a young boy. I wish you would have been a girl, whatever. And so all of this gets, that's the only way I can describe it. And so now as an adult, you know, you think this is how relationships should be. So you end up attracting or looking for um, the kind of person that's going to give you that feedback. And so there's that. And then I think, and I, this is just a, my thought. Sometimes I think people are drawn to the kind of abuser they had as a child thinking, I'll fix them. I'll repair the damage by fixing, you know, my abusive husband or my, my, you know, spendthrift wife, whatever it is, because that was in your past and you didn't see it fixed somewhere. I think people might try to project that out and fix it. So I think that's why it can happen. Yeah. I, I would add to that conversation though, that one of the reasons that people who have been shamed in earlier life are attracted and stay in toxic relationships is a, they don't believe they they deserve better. Uh, secondly, it's familiar. It's comfortably uncomfortable. They know how to do this one. They know how to think about themselves. They know what framework that they're working within. And one of the big pieces that is, is therapeutic for them is to say, you know, you were living as the result of someone else's programming. Would you like to replace that? Would you like to reconsider that? Are those values your values? Is this the vision of life that you want? Is this the kind of relationship which, when it's pointed out to you, you go, oh, no, I don't want that. But yet you have it. I mean, that's what's going on right now. And that's often the therapeutic challenge is to be able to say, you know, the story that you're telling me kind of paints out this way. And they'll go, oh, really? You know, yes, because that's what the what therapy can help with. You know, I often say to people, "Okay, you're a fish in a you're a goldfish in a bowl on a table." So as that goldfish on a bowl on a table, you come to me because I can see the goldfish in the water and the bowl and the table and the room, and so I can put it in context for you, right? And that's what we do for people in our profession is, is help them with that. But when you're mired in toxicity from a very early age, it can be very difficult to see that you could live in another scenario, that you could have different values, you could transcend all of this and choose a much healthier path. I know you've got a whole lot to say about that because you talk about that in your book. So tell us what oh. your thoughts are. Well, yeah, yeah, because the forest for the trees analogy is perfect. When you're in it, you can't see anything but what's in front of you. You know, right. I, I, I use a, a, a parable from the Bible about that, about Daniel and the lion's den. When he's in the, when he's faced by the lions, the only thing he could see was the lions. And the solution, if you read the parable, is he is turn away and look toward the light. Of course, in the Christian religion, they're looking toward Jesus. But even just from a therapeutic standpoint, turn away from the problem and look toward the solution. But one of the things that can happen for a lot of us is if this is your model, when you are, uh, when you are forming all these beliefs at the subconscious level, you don't know how to have a healthy relationship. Yeah. It's, it's, it was foreign. It was television. 
You know, that's what you saw on television. You didn't see it in your real life. You saw your dad beat your mom or your mom run around, whatever the story is. And it's like, hmm. so you begin to think that's normative. And then, like you said, then when people begin to realize this isn't normal, or I don't want to use normal as a weird word, there's other ways to live your life. And then the people that reach out uh, is beautiful because then, like you said, we can pull them back and then they can see it, you know, see the landscape, not just the tree, but the entire landscape. Right. And yes, that abuse is one tree over here. You don't have to, you, you don't even sometimes even have to cut it down. You could just, just avoid it and go into that direction. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we have limited time and there's so many things to talk about. So let's turn <laughs> our attention to addiction for a minute. What do you think the underlying cause of, of addiction is? Well, that's a, that's a great question, Doc, um, because I think it's twofold. I personally believe there's a genetic predisposition to, to addiction. Mm-hmm. You know, when they, with all the studies coming out of epigenetics, but all a genetic predisposition is, is a predisposition. It may or may not happen. You know, you could be genetically predisposed for alcoholism, but if you never drink, it, it's not going to kick off. Mm-hmm. Right. But I think there's some of that. But, you know, there's the whole, you know, is it nature? Is it nurture? Is it both? I think it's both. And when you add those together, I think part of it is from dealing with thousands of addicts and alcoholics uh, over my lifetime, uh, because besides that little prison, I've ran uh, detox centers and treatment centers. That's my passion. Mm-hmm. I overcame an alcohol addiction. And one of the things I've noticed is when you talk to somebody with an addiction, especially to alcohol and drugs, they can tell you in detail the first time they used mm. and how it made them feel. And a lot of times they'll use the analogy of it like it hits right here. And for the first time in my life, I felt normal. And what that means to me is there's, they didn't know how to have a connection. You know, what you were just talking about. Maybe they were in a toxic relationship growing up, their family. So they didn't know how to connect with their mother, their father, uh, whatever it is. And then also, too, I personally believe that underneath it, there's some trauma in there. So maybe these people had no safe space. There was no one. They didn't know how to, like, tell somebody, I'm scared. I'm, I'm this. And so they internalized it. And then they discover alcohol, drugs, sex, gambling, things like that, that gives them that. And it was... It's for many years, it's the solution. It's not the problem. Mm-hmm. But then it becomes, and what happens, I heard one guy who does addiction says, really, it's all about when the solution becomes the problem. Mm-hmm. You know, you having a couple of drinks after work to relax <clears throat> turns into a three-day binge. You know, that brings up an interesting thing, Dr. Will, because, you know, what I just heard you say is that somebody uses or drinks or whatever they're doing and they finally have a moment of feeling something and connection and yet there's a prevailing thought that people use all of those things to numb themselves out and not feel so how does that fit into your paradigm well i i think it's kind of like this is a they don't know how to feel right because maybe they were told i mean a lot of people grew up hearing you shouldn't feel that way when you're, and so, so then they don't know how to feel. Maybe they weren't nurtured. They didn't get the love, care, and support so they could begin to process feelings, whatever they happen to be. And what the alcohol or especially alcohol and drugs, it, it releases uh, 
two things, in my opinion. One is it's a feeling. It's a visceral effect. And generally, let's be honest, it feels good. You know, having a couple of drinks, it feels good. Having, you know, you take certain drugs, it, there's a momentary boost. It feels good. And so, you know, it begins to, 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 to hook that and it becomes the replacement connection. So rather than connect with people, you connect with this, with the, with whatever the addiction is. It could be a, you know, a substance addiction or a process addiction. Uh, and so that's why it's so hard to break because once you take the addiction away, generally uh, you lose your support network. Oh my goodness. There's a topic for an entire conversation <laughs> um, because that's an, that's a catch 22 of the worst order. Like if I am not an alcoholic and all these people who are enabling me or concerned about me or in my aura and taking care of me, um, will I lose their love and attention if I give up my problem? That's what you're saying, correct? Yes, yes there's that. And then, um, you know, if let's say you're an alcoholic and you, you, you know, you go to the bars and then you're going to quit. Well, where do you go? Where do you go? <laughs> what do you do? Right. And so there's that, you know, so it, it's kind of fast. I've always found just as an aside you know, when you talk about 12-step programs, especially Alcoholics Anonymous, the, if you want to say a demographic, I use that term loosely, that fits in better with the meetings are the people that drank in bars. Because there was that connection, there's that, it, sometimes it's harder for people, the demographic that drink quietly at home and don't want to be around people. Well, now you're forcing them into this meeting with 35 other people. They don't like people. So <laughs> it's, it, it's, it causes the anxiety. Right. So, you know, and so I just, I love studying addictions because I'm always looking at what works, what really works, you know, because I've seen people, you know, they, 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 they go through detox, they go through treatment, uh, and then they start going to 12-step meetings. So they're following the steps and they, they can't seem to get it. And then they see other people, they kind of stumble through rehab and not do very much right. And they quit drinking or drugging. So what's the difference that makes the difference? Mm-hmm. Oh, so much to talk about. <laughs> so much. I just want to tell everybody, and all of Dr. Will's connections are in the show notes. So you don't, if you're driving or if you don't have a pen handy, I'm not going to give you all that kind of thing. It's all there for you. But he does have a gift for you, a free ebook for you. It's called Quantum Psychology. There's more to you than meets the eye. And if what we've been talking about is fascinating to you, you'd like to know more about that, and I hope that's true, then you will be able to use the link in the show notes to access that free ebook. And in the meantime, you want to go to drwillhorton.com, D-R-W-I-L-L-H-O-R-T-O-N.com, and learn more about all of this fascinating lifetime of work that you have put out there and created to help people with what's going on in their lives. So I'm just before we end, Dr. Will, do you have one thing that is you're just itching to tell folks that they need to keep in mind? Well, first of all, Dr. Roberta, I would say that the people that listen to podcasts like this or the other podcasts I've been on or mine are, are a select few. Because you're starting the process to really begin to grasp, and I know it's overused, but to grasp your power, right? And to develop the kind of lifestyle you want. And it's work. But the way to do it is to listen to podcasts and recordings like this and to follow the people 
that are blazing the path, you know, as uh, uh, Dr. Peck said, to follow the road less traveled. And there's a, there's a few of us out there. And so I'd like to thank you for having me on and just doing this kind of work. It's, you know, I've listened to some of your podcasts. Yeah, it, I can't stress how, how important it is to the world because every person heals ripples out to hundreds of other people. Well, thank you. And I, I think you're right. And I think that's why you and I do what we do, because we have a concern that people know that there are options, there are solutions, there are different ways of being, there are different ways of thinking that will lead to different ways of feeling and therefore to different results. So thank you so much for being my guest. I'm so glad that you were here. And maybe we'll talk at another time. And for those of you who want more information about Dr. Will Horton, go to his website, Dr. Dr willhorton.com and you're listening to transforming relationship with emotional savvy if you happen to have a toxic relationship in your background you might want to listen to my other podcast save your sanity help for toxic relationships you'll find that at my website transformingrelationship.com and I hope that you found value here. If you did, please invite yourself back and listen to other episodes. Go off to my YouTube channel for Relationship Help, F-O-R, RelationshipHelp.com. There's over 450 videos over there. That I'm sure you'll find what you're looking for. And if not, just go on my website and send me a note and I'll make one that answers your question. So thanks again to Dr. Will Horton and I look forward to talking with you again soon on another episode of Emotional Savvy, Transforming Relationship with Emotional Savvy. Take good care of yourself because you matter. Thanks for being here for today's episode of Emotional Savvy. If you want to deepen your emotional savvy, make shifts in your relationships, and enjoy life and relationships more, work with me, Dr. Roberta Shaler. Get my books, enjoy my courses, or work with me directly. You can do that by visiting forrelationshiphelp.com, F-O-R, relationship, H-E-L-P.com, and subscribe to Tips for Relationships now. Don't miss a thing. Be empowered this week with more emotional savvy.